to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Brattleboro Community Television and iTunes and our Facebook page as well. So I hope you check us out there. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for the rest of us this week. As always, I am speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Hi, Olga. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. And I love how we're so coordinated with our radio listeners. We both have flowery shirts on today, so we're celebrating fall with, like, spring flowers. (laughs) (laughs) And I also want to welcome to the show Associate Professor at UVM, College of Arts and Science, Department of Geography, Pablo Bose. Is that how you say your last name? Yeah, absolutely. You got it right. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Pablo. I'm excited you're here today. For folks who aren't familiar with Pablo's work, one reason we wanted to talk to him is he has done quite a bit of research on what it means and what it takes to welcome refugees to rural communities, which is something Vermont is has been working on for many years we're kind of entering a new phase or it, it had the new phase is new attention, I guess I'll say. Um, and, and so Pablo, thank you so much for being here and talking with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I would like to actually, I'm going to throw you a little curveball. I would love to learn a little bit about why studying refugees in rural communities caught your attention. Like what about it? Um, brings you back to that that issue over and over again. Sure. Um, well, I'm an urban geographer and a migration studies scholar. Before I came to Vermont, I had studied um, mainly displacement overseas. So people who were displaced by the building of a dam, by a political conflict, by a civil war, persecution, uh, environmental change. That's something I still um, study But I had also looked at the settlement of immigrants in uh, large metropolitan areas, so in big cities. So, um, you know, I was looking at large immigrant communities in cities like Toronto, New York, London. um, So, you know, really large cities and large ethnic communities. And then I moved to Vermont. Um, And as someone who's always done community-based work, I was not sure where I would find either cities or uh, immigrant (laughs) communities. Um, But of course, there's a long history of of immigration in an earlier um, era into Vermont. Um, And while there aren't those kinds of mega cities, uh, what I found here was a really interesting Um, pattern that's taking place not only in Vermont, not only in the U.S., but in many parts of the world, uh, especially in um, parts of wealthier nations in the Nordic countries, in Canada, in Germany, France. I've done a bunch of work in all of these places looking at um, refugees and immigrants in some of these um, smaller cities, secondary cities, rural regions, all sorts of different places. And in Europe, I mean, I was really looking at very rural places like small villages that were welcoming, um, you know, refugees. And why refugees? Um, In part because refugees, unlike other immigrant populations, there's the most kind of government involvement in sort of deciding where refugees go and 
uh, arguably more support for refugees, at least in the first couple of years of arrival, than for other immigrant groups. Mm -hmm. Is it also fair to say that um, folks who may be classified as refugees the reason they're leaving their country may not always be voluntary or, or... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, pretty much always. I mean, one thing I, I should say is that we tend to use the word refugee pretty broadly, mm. but there really are important, more legal distinctions and legal uh, categories. So really what we, what we call an official refugee is somebody in, in the US, for example, somebody who is a refugee, who is resettled as a refugee, has gone through sometimes years of vetting overseas. They've gone through a long set of a lot of paperwork, a lot of interviews and screenings, and they're sort of given permission overseas to come to the US. And so they get here. It used to be, even before the last federal administration, it used to take on average a thousand days from when you actually applied to when you could could come. Now, the other category that we tend to see a lot is asylum seekers. And asylum seekers, the main difference is when you seek asylum, you actually show up in the place that you're asking for asylum and you ask for the protection then. There's no, there's often very little difference in the reason that somebody is a refugee or an asylum seeker. You're fleeing you know, reasons that are just as bad, just as pressing, just as dire. It's more kind of the legal protection in uh, the international community is geared more towards refugees than for asylum seekers. Okay, thank you. And Pablo, my understanding, and it could be totally wrong, so I wish I could have phrased this just as an open question, but I don't have that capacity right now. Um, is that the level of paperwork that's required to make it through the refugee process, um, screening process, um, require, like really screens out a lot of people on the ground. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in both cases, this has been one of the real, um, you know, uh, this has been a complaint by human rights organizations, by certainly um, many in the legal profession, that whether it's, for uh, refugee protection or asylum protection, you know, if you have had to leave your home in a hurry, in, a, in an enormous hurry, either because you've been told by the, you know, authorities get out, or you're told by someone you've got to leave because your life is in imminent uh, harm, imminent danger, the chance of you having all of your stuff together. If you were told today, get out of your house right now, do you have everything that you would need to rebuild your life? Do you have everything that can prove to someone else that your life is in danger? And I mean, and I would say- And additionally, if you're in a country that's had a failing rule of law for a number of years, it's possible none of that paperwork ever even existed. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, also- and asylum is a little bit different as well, because like you, I mean, in both cases, you have to prove that you are um, under threat and that you going back home would put you in harm's way. And sometimes that is really challenging, especially because, you know, our refugee legal systems in the world are still based on, in many ways, a post-World War II idea that mm -hmm. there's nation states with stable borders and you can, you know, you can go back and forth between them. Increasingly, a lot of people in the world are actually not displaced 
outside of their country. They're displaced within the borders. They're called internally displaced persons. Um, and so it's really hard. The other thing is that, especially in asylum cases, you know, the U.S. used to be a really sort of leading country to consider a more expansive way of thinking about why might your life be in danger. It's not just because of your, you know, political affiliation or your ethnic or racial identity. It might be because of domestic violence. It might, might be because of your gender identity, sexual identity, all of sexual orientation, all of these kinds of things. Uh, under the last administration, under the last U.S. administration, a lot of those categories were actually narrowed or they were they didn't use them um, as a way of determining harm. And so that's been a real, real challenge as well. And have they expanded back under the current administration? Um, the, recent, the former administration. I know. I, I try not to always. I, no, I genuinely yeah. appreciate it. Because I think it actually also helps us put in, it puts in some context the fact that this has changed over many, many administrations in many different directions too. So I- Yeah, that, actually that's a really good way of putting it because I also think that there are things that are continuities. I mean, right now, for example, um, the Biden administration is is actually continuing. Some, there's some things that's changed. There are others that, um, so for example, um, they have- I believe they've continued some elements of the remain in Mexico um, policies of the last administration. There's other kinds of things that they're, I know they're using some of the public health uh, crises rules to do really quick deportations of some people. Um, again, th this is not with refugees. I mean, and, and the really important distinction is that refugees um, go through a much longer vetting process. It's not, well, that's not entirely true because when you're in the asylum seeking process, you have to go through a ton of paperwork as well. And you, it's like a lengthy, lengthy process that you're going through. It's just where it's happening is different. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I want to make sure in this half, Emily, that we get to kind of laying the groundwork of what's been happening in Vermont. Um, That's just what I was going to ask okay, about. Okay, cool. <laughs> so either Emily or Pablo, if you can speak to that, like let's let's give folks a real foundation in some of the state's efforts and and what is what has happened around refugee resettlement in Vermont. What's a shape it's taken, and where are we now, and where do you think we're going? Well, let me start just, you know, so, re, you know, Governor Scott and um, many other leaders throughout Vermont have said for quite a while, we are ready and willing to welcome refugees. And as part of that conversation, Brattleboro has been working for quite a while to um, either expand our asylum um, reception process mm -hmm. or to formally welcome refugees and become a refugee resettlement site. And Within the last year, we found out that we are um, sort of very close to being fully approved for that process. And then at the same time that all that was happening, um, the US formerly withdrew from Afghanistan and um, the number of folks fleeing Afghanistan quite quickly, um, I think most of us have seen enough headlines about that that I don't need to get into it. And I would probably start crying, so I will not do that. But um, it means that we're going to have a whole lot of folks who have left Afghanistan coming to Vermont in the next couple weeks, at least. And so 
or months, no one really knows, very soon. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to Pablo about all of this is because of your really deep knowledge working in refugee resettlement in the Burlington area um, and understanding of sort of what works there, what hasn't worked there to really bring some of those lessons to Brattleboro, um, which I think is an incredibly welcoming open community and I know doesn't really have the infrastructure in place yet because we haven't done this before. And so really want to sort of like hear more about what happened in Burlington um, and what's happening in Burlington, Winooski, Chittenden County. Um, so we can sort of think about what's possible and what's necessary down here. Sure. So, uh, you know, in it's called it's been called the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program. It's now called the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants in Vermont. Um, and, you know, it's a federal program that has been bringing refugees to Vermont for uh, since 1980. Uh, now, there were refugees who were um, brought to Vermont before that, primarily from um, Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia. In, you know, in the U.S., the refugee program was um, less formalized before 1980. So it was really kind of church groups and, uh, you know, informal sponsorships, some formal sponsorships that were bringing people in. In the late 70s, as the kind of large number of Southeast Asian refugees sort of appeared on the horizon, the program was formalized. And it now works as a partnership between the federal government and a number of nonprofit or not-for-profit organizations. Some of them are faith-based, so the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the Lutheran, um, the Episcopal, uh, you know, so there's a number of these different um, organizations. There's also uh, the International Rescue Committee, USCRI, a bunch of these others. Uh, in Vermont, um, that becomes formalized again in the early 80s. And you see, even though it's called Vermont Refugee Resettlement, about 99% of refugees have always come to the Chittenden County area. And within that, it's actually even more narrow than that. It's been really Burlington, Winooski, and a, a smattering of people elsewhere, but it's really Burlington and Winooski. For a long, and, and you know, in terms of numbers, it's been, um, you know, throughout that period, it was anywhere from 50, 100 in the larger times when, for example, the Bosnians came in the late 90s, in the mid to late 90s, maybe 350, 400 people a year were coming just for a couple of years. By the time I came to Vermont, which was in um, 2006, uh, between 2006 and about 2012, the numbers had stabilized. So there was about 300 to 350 people coming a year to Vermont. Um, just to put that into context nationally, ar around the same time, we were resettling between um, 75 and 85,000 people a year. Again, this is a, a really small number of the people who are displaced across the globe. There's about 35 million in 2010, about 80 million people who are displaced in the world today. That's just people displaced by conflict. So it's a very, very small number of people who actually become refugees. This is not asylum seekers and actually end up in a place like the US. Um, but yeah, there was about 75,000 people a year. Most of them are going to California, Texas, uh, New York, Florida, places like that. But increasingly, they were coming to places like Vermont and they were coming to Chittenden County. 
for the most part, that program has been very successful. You know, there's been high levels of, of employment. There's been high levels of kind of successful integration for a number of those communities, the, the Vietnamese community, the Bosnians, um, the other big um, sort of groups that have come is African communities have resettled uh, from the Congo, from um, Burundi, from Sudan, from Somalia. Um, and then uh, that was really between about 2003 till now. And then you've also had communities settle from Bhutan and from um, so Bhutanese, Nepali speakers, and then um, Iraq and uh, Burma as well. Um, so that sort of picked up um, until about 2016. And then in 2016, uh, the federal government basically uh, drastically cut the refugee resettlement program from a planned 110,000 people coming in in 2016, that became about 50,000 people, uh, 2017. And then every year that fell and fell and fell. So that last year it was about 11,000 people. So just a enormous nationally. Well, yes. I don't think I realized it. Oh yeah. So it, it dropped, dropped, dropped. And that meant that in Vermont, you went from having 300 people a year, 350 people a year down to a hundred to 50 to 40 people. Now, before all of these cuts had happened, there were a number of different uh, cities and towns in Vermont that had looked for um, creating a refugee resettlement program of their own because it has been pretty successful. And I'll get to your other questions um, in a moment about like what has and hasn't worked. Um, but it had worked well enough that a number of other places had had uh, kind of applied for this, most notably Rutland. And, you know, it had made a lot of sense for Rutland. Now, there were problems with the process. Um, ironically, problems that I actually think were really well-intentioned in that the idea was, you know, there had been one other attempt at resettlement outside of Chittenden County, and that had been in Barrie. And there had been some hiccups in that. Um, there had been enough that, you know, a lot of the people who had been resettled there ended up moving closer to the Burlington area. And so they didn't want to repeat that. They wanted to make sure that, you know, providers were ready, that the schools were ready, that um, the people being resettled were ready to go to where they were going. And so I think that there were, it was an abundance of caution of trying to like lay the groundwork and that, you know, coincided with all of the national kind of hysteria about refugees during the 2015, 2016 political seasons. And a program that has long had bipartisan support all of a sudden became, you know, deeply controversial, like everything is, um, and especially everything to do with immigration. So um, that's kind of why it got sidelined. But, but you know, when they started talking again about um, maybe opening up a new resettlement site, Brattleboro came to the um, that's where Brattleboro came in. Mm -hmm. And so in Burlington, Winooski, um, when you said that it was successful, what does that, what does that mean? And sort of successful for who? Um, I'm, you know, I'm curious to hear about what it means for it to be successful sort of in the government eyes or in like Burlington leaders eyes and then what it means, um, to be successful from the perspective of the, of the refugee? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. One of the questions that 
I've always loved asking, you know, I, I did this five-year study of refugee resettlement outside of the metropolitan areas, and I went all across the country. Um, there was There's about 230 locations that refugee resettlement happens all across the U.S., and that's one of the questions I always ask is like, what do you consider to be re- you know, successful? And for some people being re- uh, successful is buying a house, getting a job, um, completing school. So it, it really depends on you know, who you ask what success means. Um, I think at its heart, for me at least, re- successful resettlement is not even about integration. It's about the ability to rebuild your life. Mm-hmm in some fashion. And people have different desires with what that building of rebuilding of life is going to look like. Um, when I look at Vermont, I definitely see, you know, and again, because I take this sort of broader view of other places in which, you know, is a sign of a lack of success, the fact that you don't stay there. Not necessarily. There are lots of different reasons that people may, may leave. So for example, we have seen um, uh, the departure of a number of people in the Bhutanese community who have gone to Pennsylvania, Ohio, especially Pennsylvania and Ohio. Um, and, you know, I've had legislators ask me before, you know, what are we doing wrong? And I said, well, there's parts of this that is not about Vermont. It's that people like to be in another place with other people from their community. And so Ohio, for example, Dayton and Columbus have become these sort of uh, places where there are lots of Bhutanese people, you know, in the same way that St. Louis, uh, East St. Louis is like a big Bosnian, has a huge Bosnian community Mm -hmm. or, you know, parts of Southern California or Louisiana have big um, Vietnamese communities. So part of that's that. And part of it is the same reason that some other people leave Vermont is, you know, things like the cost of housing or, you know, uh, lack of affordability. And so if you're looking at your relatives who got resettled in Iowa or Ohio, and you're like, wow, you can get cheaper housing here, that might drive that as well. So, I mean, that question of, of success is, you know, really up to the beholder to some degree, but from those bigger measures, I would say employment is very high here um, compared to some other places. Um, you know, educational attainment by some of the communities in particular have been pretty good. Um, and you see uh, second generations, third generations going through post-secondary, you know, moving on to uh, higher ed, um, getting good jobs. Um, you've seen a decent amount of home, home ownership in uh, some of the communities. Again, there are other factors at play, and I don't think you've necessarily always seen the same level of success in each community. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with kind of other things. Um, you know, race plays a big role in it. Um, you know, the context that people are coming out of, um, access to other sorts of resources, those all play a role. Mm-hmm. Just uh, in, in the interest of time, we have about five minutes before we need to go to break. And I'm loving this conversation. Thank you, Pablo. But I want to touch base with both of you. What do we want to leave listeners with before we, we head to break? Um. I'm really reflecting as we sort of move into what does this mean for Brattleboro or what um, does Brattleboro need to do about the 
international context of this. Um, and this is sort of one of our themes on the happy hour for this entire off session that like, Vermont is not a magical island. We sit in the context of a lot of national and international forces, as well as a lot of national international best practices that we could draw on a whole lot more than we do. And so um, I'm thinking about sort of what you said, Pablo, about the reasons people come here, the context that people are coming from, how few people make it here, um, what that means for those folks who make it here, and that this is happening all these sort of these rural settlements are happening all over this country and they're also happening um, all over wealthier nations. And so I'm, I really wanna make sure that we're learning from all of those places and remembering that context when we try to sort of invent our single wheel down here. I mean, you know, that's a really you know, important point, I think to focus on um, I would in general say that the U.S., I you know, I moved to the U.S. from Canada and coming to see what refugee resettlement looks like here was a big shock in many ways. The U.S. has, has always, well, until the last little bit, has been a, a leader in uh, the number of people who are resettled. More people are resettled in the U.S., um, not per capita, but nominally have been until recent years when Canada um, surpassed it. But the way in which resettlement is done here is really different. It really is this sort of decentralized private public partnership. It really depends on which state you're in, which city you're in. It looks really different. It looks really different in California versus Texas versus Maine. And so one of the things that's always been challenging to me is despite all of the controversies about like, why are we letting refugees in and why are we giving them this, that, and the other thing? The two things that have always struck me is that we we basically, the U.S. refugee program is built on two things. One, making sure that whoever you let in is not going to be a security threat. And two, that they're going to pay for themselves pretty soon. So right? soon. So soon. You, so soon. And I'm not even talking about the fact that like refugees have to pay for their travel. We like stick them with the bill for the travel. But beyond that, you know, having been an immigrant in two different countries, like I know how long it takes you to really get a sense of, of place. And I mean, I moved from Canada and it was, it took me a while and to get. And you moved like, here with a, with a, with a job. With a very like, nice job. Yeah. With a very I nice mean, job. We can debate was, how well, how good a job right. academia is. But, but, yeah. but I mean, <laughs> you know, it was hard for me to get a bank account when I first moved here. Right. So, you know, and you think about like people starting over from scratch in, in many ways and kind of the burden that we put on them in, you know, regular refugee resettlement, it's like, you know, you've got eight months of assistance and then boom, you're, you got to be ready to go. And so when I think about the best practices and one of the things that I was, I am particularly excited about in terms of Brattleboro is that one of the things that is being attempted there is a pilot of a new or a new version of something that we've done before, which is community sponsorship. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really looking at, coming back to your question about best practices at places like Canada, right? So when Canada went through this resettlement of Syrians in 2015, 2016, they initially planned to resettle 25,000 people. But then the government said, okay, well, you know, everybody was really, there was a lot of public support for this. So the government said, well, we will open it up so that if a group of four people want to put money into this themselves, 
they can sponsor a, you know, a family to come. There was so much demand for that program that an additional 30,000 Syrian refugees were resettled through private sponsorship and, and through some blended programs as well. And you know, there's a lot to be said about community sponsorship. There's criticisms as well of saying like, well, are we just making government, mm-hmm. you know, taking government off the hook? But there's ways of building like longer term, deeper bonds by using uh, a technique like that. And let's talk about that after the break because I'm so excited yeah, about that idea of the definitely. community integration. Yeah. So stay tuned, everyone. Pablo, Emily, and I will be back in a moment after we hear from some underwriters on WVEW. second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the guest and the hosts and not anyone else, not the radio station, not the TV station, not the various mega corporations that own the social media platforms that are being streamed on, not our employers, not our second employers, nor our third employers, <laughs> just us talking here on the show. Thank you. Welcome. And if you're just joining us, I am speaking, of course, with Representative Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro and Associate Professor from UVM, Pablo Bose, who is joining us to talk about refugees in Vermont. So thank you so much. Um, We were talking before the break about um, the work that's happening in Brattleboro around resettling folks. And I believe this is, um, is this the work that's happening with the Ethiopian Commission um, Development Council? Ethiopian Community Development Council, I believe. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Can't read my own handwriting. And before we jump into a deeper conversation, I just want to sort of lay some groundwork about some... Um, something that floats around a lot is they're called the Ethiopian ECDC, the E stands for Ethiopian. It doesn't mean that they're resettling Ethiopian folks here. No, no, not at all. That many, many, many years ago when they were founded, they happened to resettle some Ethiopian folks. Yeah, that's a really, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say that's a really important distinction to make because for example, the Lutherans, the Catholics, any of these organizations, you know, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, for example, mostly resettled Muslim refugees from Syria and Iraq in you know, places like Florida. Um, my main community partner here in Burlington is called the Association of Africans Living in Vermont. 85% of their clients are Nepalese. So, I mean, it, it's, it's really a historical legacy of that organization. Um, the really interesting thing about ECDC, the, the organization that's working in Brattleboro. So I, I met them a number of years ago, but I became really interested in their proposal for doing uh, resettlement. I started talking to them about a year and a half ago because they are of the nine national organizations. They're the one that comes from a most the most community-based background and were most interested in a community-based approach. Um, so some of the others, you know, have other kind of congregation-based or, 
you know, IRC does a lot of overseas work as well, but ECDC has the most kind of roots in, in communities. They all do, but, but they do. that's what their origin is. And in Brattleboro, we already have the Community Asylum Seekers Project, which does this on a teeny tiny little itty bitty scale um, and has um, been doing that for quite a while and have been growing very, very slowly from their very small beginnings. And that's entirely sort of community individual sponsorship of asylum seekers, which is a totally different legal category than either the Afghan folks coming or refugees. So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting um this was one of the things that was curious to me because I was thinking, well, you know, how would a program, you know, that they're building on this existing base, but that, you know, the kind of resettlement that was happening here was very different. And yet, of course, as we know with the Afghan um, Afghans who are coming in, they're sort of in between these two categories. So in many ways, uh, CASP is, I think, um, perhaps even better prepared than some others would be to deal with the very particular kinds of needs of a population like this. And so what are some of those very particular needs? I mean, now things are in a flux continuously. You know, one of the the real challenges, you, you were asking or you were talking a little bit about when people would actually arrive. And mm -hmm. speaking specifically about the, actually, let me just step back a minute and say that, you know, I left off before the break talking a little bit about, um, you know, how refugees had been coming into Vermont. And mm -hmm. when this idea of Brattleboro being a potential site, this was with a kind of a longer timeline in mind, wow. you know, like, well, this is going to happen, you know, maybe it'll happen in a little while, you know, prepare the groundwork, see what's going to happen. And that was true all across the country. What the Afghan um, crisis precipitated was what do you do right now? Because back in the 2020 election, Biden was speaking at the time about bringing in 125,000 refugees this year, which was more than the last year proposed of the Obama administration. We've never resettled in the last 20, 25 years, really since the 1980s. We've never resettled, you no, know, in the, I guess, the Bosnians, but we've never resettled more than. Um, you know, 85,000 people. So when Biden was talking about 125,000, those of us who work in this area were like, how are you going to do that? Especially after years and years of cutbacks. Mm -hmm. um, and so the revised number was actually 65,000, I think 62,500 this year. And even then people were thinking, well, how is that going to happen? You can't just turn around and, and start it all up again. You need to have the, the services in, in place. And then the Afghan crisis hit. And so you had, of the 120,000 odd people who were pulled out of uh, Afghanistan, about half of those people were uh, American citizens and green card holders, pre uh, permanent residents. They were not refugees. They were not going to be in this category. There were an, another group who were people who had worked uh, directly for the U.S. as interpreters and translators. And they are actually eligible through a different special immigrant visa category. And that's the, partly because they've already gone through massive amounts of screening in order to have those jobs that they had. In yes. Afghanistan. Yes. Um, of the 53,000 or so other people who were pulled out, the vast majority of them, about 37,000 um, ended up on uh, eight or nine military bases in the U.S. Um, most of them are still there. 
uh, in total, I believe about 50,000 people are in the US. Um, they're currently in the US and they're uh, on the bases. Um, mostly, they it has not been because of any security concerns, health concerns. There were some cases of measles, you know, I think about 12 out of the 50,000 odd people. You know, so there was all these medical checks, all these security checks, and, you know, there really were no issues. Um, the big issue has been uh, housing in terms of uh, finding them housing in the locations that they're going to go to. And so you said, you know, the idea when Biden was first proposing these big numbers long before yeah. um, we were talking about the Afghan folks coming here, um, you said getting the services ready. Yeah. So housing is obviously one of those services and sort of, you know, something needs to be with. housing for a family, not just housing, you know, not just a single room. Um, and we know that we have a bit of a housing shortage in Brattleboro particularly, but in all of Vermont. And I think nationally right now, yeah. what are the other services that need to be in place to do this? Um, I won't even see well to do this adequately. So the main kind of services that you can think about, and you could divide these into two different broad categories. The first are the triage services, the things that you really need to do just to survive, right? So you need to make sure that people have adequate housing, um, employment. I mean, this is one of the challenges, as I said before, we insist that people are self-sufficient and that self-sufficiency is, is assessed on the basis of whether or not somebody has a job within 90 days and 180 days. Now we're trying, one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to do, I do a lot of evaluation of resettlement services. And one of the things I'm trying to push in multiple different places is kind of looking at this on a broader basis. But and just so, just so folks know, I was just um, in a meeting right before this meeting, uh, looking at the average number of days that someone's on unemployment in Vermont, which, um, and it is more than 90 days. Right. I mean, again, because resettlement for the most part here and elsewhere is so closely tied to employment, you have fairly high employment uh, numbers. A lot of the refugees tend to be placed with, you know, in Burlington, for example, there's a number of um, large institutional employers who, mm -hmm. you know, the, the medical, um, medical center, um, there's a couple of really good long-term employers here, Twincraft, Rhino Foods. There's a bunch of different ones here uh, who've been really great. But so employment is big, housing is big, medical, you need to make sure that everybody goes through, you know, the kids are in, uh, are being seen by the doctors. Um, you know, all of that is set up. Uh, food, access to food is a huge part of this. Um, you and know, when you say access to food, do you mean access yeah. to like any food or do you mean access to food that matches people's cultural um, expectations? I mean, immediately, it, it's really any food. And yeah. I mean, that's something that, you know, another big part of the work that I do is actually trying to um, match more closely. I, I did a project with the Vermont Food Bank last year where we looked at food that was going to refugee families through a delivery program and we tried to match it closer to um, it's not even cultural preferences. It was more that people just wanted fresh um, vegetables rather than, you know, some of the prepared or boxed foods or frozen foods. 
Um, so that's the sort of immediate set of services. The other big one is language services, right? That like you want to get people access to English language education. Um, and that's a range of different kinds. And that's something that we've found over time, rather than just having everybody in English classes and get up to X proficiency, you want to make sure that there's language that is appropriate to what people need. So that might be um, language for uh, a particular job or, or occupation. It might be, um, you know, some of our most successful classes here are citizenship classes that are held mm -hmm. in English. Um, so, you know, supporting those kinds of things. In the schools, you want to provide as much support for the schools to have, um, you know, support for the not only the students, but for their families as well. So something that we've seen that has worked really well in Burlington and Winooski is something called the multicultural liaison, homeschool liaison programs, um, where you have people who are uh, skilled in their own communities acting as paraeducators. So you want stuff like that. And we like actually, that. just to, just so folks know, we actually passed a bill last session that expanded the capacity for that um, to every town in Vermont. That's really fantastic because I know that the first round of those kinds of uh, positions were all grant funded, um, mm -hmm. you know, through a federal uh, education grant here, and but they need to be base funded. Mm -hmm. There's also longer term services that you really, you know, I would say that transportation isn't a longer term services. It's another one of those immediate ones. Especially really in a rural area. And so we might count Burlington as rural, but there is actually right. yeah. like enough, yeah. there's enough public transportation that people could get from pretty much living anywhere to pretty much any job. That yeah. is absolutely not true down here. Right. Right. And I mean, you know, when I first came here, and in fact, one of the ways that Emily and I first met was through a project I was doing funded through the U.S. Department of Transportation, where we were looking at um, what, you know, not just like transportation is an issue for everyone in all sorts of different ways. But what I wanted to really look at is what are the effects of not having adequate transportation? And what was really clear was that there were employment opportunities missed. Mm -hmm. because if people are working second and third shift, you know, and you can't get there, you can't take that job. Um, after school and preschool uh, activities um, were curtailed for many children of refugees and simply access to all sorts of services were really affected by this. Longer term, I would say that there are other kinds of things that for a successful resettlement, you really need to, to um really have in mind. One of the big ones is mental health and uh, trauma. Uh, there is a fabulous program that works here at, at, um, in Vermont uh, and has actually been a model for other, other communities across the, the US and it's uh, called Connecting Cultures and it's part of the New England Survivors of Torture and Trauma and it provides mental health services, all sorts of services for uh, people in these communities, and um, and I, I'm working on a, a partnership with them, focusing on youth as well. So youth um, development, youth programming um, is a long-term, uh, I think, service that needs to be provided. Uh, thinking about transportation in the longer term, thinking about employment. Wanna, sorry, sorry, can we go, go back to the mental yeah. health services for a second? Because yeah. I want to name something that I don't know. Um, I just want to make sure all of our listeners are aware of. Afghanistan hasn't just been at war since we invaded it. Mm. There's been yeah. 
we were not the first round of failed invasions. Um, there have been generations. I mean, even since our invasion, there have been generations. I mean, that was a long time ago. Um, but it's a country that's lived through generations of constant war, constant colonial war at this point. And that has, there's the short-term immediate traumas that happen as a result of that. And there's also the longer term intergenerational trauma that happens when that happens. That is, I think, incomprehensible to me who's been there. And I think incomprehensible to almost everyone else who has, you know. And, and I think that there's also, you know, it's important to note, you know, we're we've been talking mostly here about Afghanistan. And right now the plan is that for the Brattleboro resettlement that of a proposed 75 people who would arrive in Brattleboro, 25 would be from Afghanistan. So you're still thinking about 50 other people potentially who are coming from other places. And one of the things that is sometimes challenging is that we talk about refugees as this catch-all. And it's not just about legal categories, but people are also coming from very different um, situations and backgrounds. So take, for example, here in Burlington, you have, people who came from Vietnam or Bosnia who were violently displaced in you know, a period of, of civil war um, and invasion, um, you know, unspeakable kind of horrors, but it would have been very different, the experience of people who were displaced kind of immediately from uh, South Vietnam and those who were stuck in the, the boat camps in Hong Kong. Yes. Um, you know, people here who have come here from Somalia from the DRC or Congo, or who came from Bhutan. There or people are people who are in a refugee camp in Kenya for two generations, right? Or in Nepal, or yeah, mm -hmm. you know, there are people who were born in a refugee camp, you know, so there are different kinds of trauma that are attached to them. There are the, the kinds of sexual violence that uh, a number of um, survivors have, um, have experienced, you know, that requires different kinds of support or different kinds of programming. And so, you know, there was a program that, for example, one of my students here, I work with clinical psychologists here at UVM. One of my students worked with um, young mothers who displayed sort of dissociative behavior with infants. Um, and so, the, you know, there's something that's very different for them than for others who have experienced other kinds of trauma. So, you know, then, that's something to really think about. So there's that to think about. And then there's sort of the, when you name language services, it's not just one language that we're providing language services for. And yeah. so- And even within these communities, you know, some of them are certainly multilingual communities themselves. Yes. There are communities that, have you know languages that they are not literate in. It's not just that it's it's a inability to understand English. Um, on the other hand, you also have highly skilled refugees, highly you know educated people. Um, often, the people who actually make it out of a country are the people who have access to some level of capital, networks, resources. Um, you know, when my family were refugees in 1946 and, you know, uh, they fled across the border from what is now Bangladesh to what is now India, um, but were able to make it across. They were, they were um, given legitimacy as refugees. All the sort of peasants who made it across two years later were simply called economic migrants and denied those yeah. same sorts of protections. So that kind of thing is not, not uncommon.
And thank you for naming that, um, not just in terms of us thinking about who's left behind in all of these places, which I think is really important for us to have a global awareness of, but also to remember when folks in Brattleboro are meeting the folks who have arrived here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I think that it's, you know, one of the challenges I find for a lot of the local communities, you know, I, I have, as I said, I've looked at refugee resettlement in many, many places. And one of the things that I've always felt to be a gap um, and has been mentioned as a gap in the U.S. Um, program for many years is a lack of involvement of local communities in the decision-making itself, mm. not for nefarious reasons, I don't think. I think, you know, I mean, I, you know, this kind of idea that, oh, refugees are being foisted on a particular place. But for, for, my, for me, I think it's always more helpful to have local communities be more invested. This is one of the reasons I'm so supportive of community sponsorship is the idea that the more kind of advanced warning you have, the better prepared you can be. And I would say that the other, other part of it is to have, I do think that local communities themselves need to step up and, and be engaged. But I also think that the federal government and the state for that matter, can't simply want refugees or can't simply want immigrants as, as a kind of, you know, named good, but you also have to kind of invest or in as that. A, or as an anonymous workforce. Or as an anonymous workforce, you know, this is not just that, hey, how can we get some cheap labor, right? This is, that's not, you know, we'll, we'll do some good, but we'll also get some cheap labor. That's not the, the intention here. And as one of um, our community partners here has often said to me um, in ALV, the executive uh, director often says, you know, I don't want to see us resettle people into poverty. I don't want us to resettle people in ways that would not set them up for success. And so everything that can um, support that is I think my, my main goal. My hope is that the community sponsorship model doesn't just um, offer people greater access to community and resources when they arrive. It doesn't just help people understand that directions are given like you know, the apple tree that used to be there, but someone, you know, Bob chopped down five years ago, turned left there. Like, it's not just to help people with the bizarre implicit ways we navigate garbage pickup mm. here, but it's also um, that by having community sponsorship, we'll have advocacy, a much broader set of advocates to state government, to local government, and to federal government about what like solid infrastructure and financial resources are need to make this work. I mean, you know, one of the, again, returning to one of the first questions you asked about like how we measure success. And one of the, one of the things I have seen in other communities where you have a longer history of uh, resettlement or immigration is the involvement. Like sometimes when we say community sponsorship, that's just a code of a code word of saying like how, you know, the, not necessarily the white community, but like the, the host community that's already here, the quote native community is the one that's doing the, the, is, is the community that is engaged. But 
you know, one really interesting thing I saw in um, some of the community sponsorship that was taking place in Canada was that in some cases, it was people who had been resettled themselves mm -hmm. generations before who were then turning to engage in the same kind of practices. Uh, here in Vermont, you know, it's always been uh, fascinating to me to see not only the director of USCRI Vermont, who herself came here through the refugee program, Amila Mirzanovich, or so many of the people who work for the, um, the agencies themselves, ALV, USCRI, VT, themselves came through immigrant and refugee pathways. And therefore they kind of know um, not just, as you say, those kinds of idiosyncrasies of Vermont or like, what is it that you need to know about like the fact that it, it's cold here at different you know, times or what can you grow here, but to really build those longer lasting networks mm -hmm. and to really, but to be able to build your life in the way that you want to. I often shy away. I certainly shy away from the idea of assimilation, but even integration suggests that you are, you are learning to be like the place that you're going to. And that that's fine. There is a, an element of that. I've learned certain things about Vermont since moving here, but I also hold on strongly to the things that I all, uh, also consider important. And I think that's, an, that's a very significant element of this. And that's where and that's I do how think- we, That's how we grow and change as a community and as a state. I mean, that's- Absolutely. Vermont, yeah. you know, some of us could- look back at the roots of why Bernie Sanders is our senator at you know, like huge inflow of immigration to Barrie at the turn of the last century, right? And like all the anarchists and socialists that moved there, right? Like there's, there's so much cultural evolution that happens when people are allowed to be somewhere as they, as they are and who they are with the values that they're carrying with them. Absolutely. We are out of time. I'm so, glad I closed on that Bernie anarchist move. That, there was, you like, go. that, was, that was some solid closing comments right there. <laughs> um, so, but uh, thank you so much, Pablo, for joining us today. I hope you can come back to the show as um, we hold more conversations around how people can thrive in their communities. As always, the Montpelier Happy Hour can be found Friday afternoons on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, as well as our Facebook page, Emily's um, website, and our website, MontpelierHappyHour.CaptivateFM. Have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs>